Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Victoria Lloyd Barlow about her literary novel, All the Little Bird Hearts. Victoria has a PhD in creative writing from the University of Kent and has an extensive personal, professional and academic experience relating to autism. Like her novel's protagonist, Victoria is autistic. She has presented her doctoral research internationally, most recently speaking at Harvard University on autism and literary narrative. Victoria lives with her husband and children on the coast of North East Kent. In this episode, we discuss writing from the perspective of an autistic woman as an autistic author herself, how she left school without qualifications before studying for a PhD in later life, and her advice for neurodiverse authors navigating the publishing industry. But first, here's Victoria with an excerpt from All the Little Bird Hearts. I have always lived here, so I know the end of summer brings flames to the fields. I am drawn to watch after each harvest, as the farm workers set child-sized fires to consume what is barren on the land. The smoke rushes down to the gardens below, and it is rotten but sweet with knowing. And every year I repeat, Brookia la terra, Brookia la terra to myself. This is the way Italians describe the intensity with which Sicilians work their land, burn the earth. I whisper this as softly as a prayer, to make the fires seem good and pure. The post-harvest burnings taught me how fire can be mistaken for light and can call to you in the same way. When my eyes acclimatised to the sunlight, I noticed a small dark-haired woman lying on the lawn next door. The house was a holiday home, owned by Tom and his wife, who visited each summer and for occasional long weekends. Locals did not typically take to the summer people, whose numbers had increased in recent years but Tom was affable enough to remain outside this category. He had three children. All were so close together in age that for several years it had seemed he was bringing the same unchanged baby back and that the infants who toddled uncertainly behind him were the real newcomers. Tom's wife was fair-haired and as soft-bodied and sweet-faced as a child herself. The woman in the garden was none of these things. Her obliviousness to my gaze immediately moved me. She was on her back with her arms and legs spread out to a degree that looked unnatural, as though she'd fallen from a real height or been positioned unconscious by someone else entirely. Here was the pleasure of observation without the ambiguity of eye contact, 
which costs but never confirms what you're being promised or refused. I once watched my baby daughter like this, while she floated easily on her back across the screen of a scanning machine. I have loved you longest, I would tell Dolly when I felt sentimental, making my case in a contest that she did not in any case care to enter. I knew you first, I said, over and over to my daughter. I watched you, loved you before you ever saw me. I spoke first to her watchful baby face, and later I addressed her composed woman face, with the same tender and misplaced ownership. Her eyes remained unchanged with age. Always, she was suspicious and scrupulous in equal measure. Hi, Victoria. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast with me today to discuss your debut novel, All the Little Bird Hearts. Hi, Chloe. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to talk to you about it. So can you start by introducing the novel to us and telling us what All the Little Bird Hearts is about? Yeah, sure. So the book's set in the mid-1980s and it's narrated by a single mother called Sunday who lives in the Lake District with her 16-year-old daughter, Dolly. Um, a glamorous couple from London move in next door and they bewitch the two women over one summer, which eventually results in enormous changes for all four of them. Mm, and these neighbours that arrive are kind of instantly disruptive to Sunday's life. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your kind of inspiration for the novel, because I read that, I mean, you are an autistic writer yourself and you've talked about how you felt that in fiction particularly that kind of authentic autistic life is underrepresented and I was wondering whether that was your starting point for this novel or was it something else? Um, In some ways that was the starting point. The important thing for me was that I had an autistic narrator and protagonist and that she would be speaking in the first person voice so her experience would be really core to the book and the reader would get a sense of that from from the protagonist rather than from an observer um so that was important to me my practical starting point for the novel was um a place we used to live in a village which had farmland surrounding the village we lived in a valley and i picked the children up from school and every year there was agricultural fires on the farmland around the school and one day I was watching the fires, waiting for the children to come out. And their fire always made me feel like they were quite beautiful, the fires, but also kind of menacing in like a wicker man kind of way because it felt like a sort of ritual that no one spoke about, but we just watched every year. And so I was watching the fire and I mentioned to a couple of the other mums who were waiting about how strange I found the fire and wasn't it spooky and menacing and nobody agreed at all (laughs) no one thought they were at all strange they were just a normal part of life and I thought well that's really interesting that I feel very strongly about them and no one else is having this experience and so I took that experience into the novel and I wanted Sunday to be someone who um, really considered her own experiences and didn't just absorb what everyone else felt and thought but actually really examined her own feelings and her own perspective um so that was another starting point that was more of a practical starting point with looking at the fires and the way that I interpreted them um yeah that was another starting point for me for the book yeah I really love Sunday as a character and I've kind of over the years seen this trend kind of popping up of of characters who are maybe neurodivergent or kind of seen as 
the kind of quirky comedic character that they're almost portrayed as the oddball, the odd one out who can't quite connect socially. But Sunday, because she's written by you, is written so authentically and honestly. And I think that really helps as a reader to to read a character that feels so believable. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about who Sunday is, what she's about, and also your experience of creating this character. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things about autism for me is the interiority of the condition. It's an experience that's profoundly um, an inner experience. And yet the predominant theories about ASC are largely those made by neurotypical people. So that's purely on observation and data rather than experience. Um, and I find many of those theories entirely foreign to my own experience of autism. So it was really important to me to, to write um, as an autistic person and to narrate an experience that is authentic. Um, I know when I'm reading the work that I find most relatable, whether it's fiction or factual, regarding autism is written by autistic people. Um, and that to me feels much more relatable when I'm reading it. It feels more important to me. Um, and it was important to me in the book that Sunday demonstrated both the challenges and the beauty of autism. So I didn't want her to have an experience that was entirely without struggle. But I also wanted her to have moments of joy through her condition. Um, and that's something I tried to use within the book. Um, one of the important things for me with Sunday was that she would have a job that she loved and was good at and that she found real peace in um, and was capable at doing because um, I think about 21% of autistic people are in a, are in um, employment. Um, so lots of us are unemployed and those of us who are employed, that quarter percent, um, that quarter of people um, are underemployed due to that, you know, as far as their capabilities go. And I really wanted Sunday to show how capable she was and how much her job, how much joy her job brings her, because that's so vital to her life and would be to so many people if they could access that. Mm. And what you've said there about wanting to bring that authenticity and because it's written in your voice, we often hear discussions about kind of own voices writing and, and there's always a debate about, you know, who should write certain characters. But I think the beauty of own voices writing and writing from an experience that you have yourself is that you're including details that no one else would get no one else would quite capture and I think you did that beautifully I'm, I'm thinking particularly about Sundays um, when she's choosing her food when she's selecting things to eat that's something that I don't think a neurotypical person would pick up on or necessarily write about but the way you've captured it gives us gives those of us who don't experience that kind of life a real insight into not only what it's like to to live with autism but also to be in Sunday's head as well. Yeah I'm glad I'm glad you feel that way um because those things are challenging to write about at first because it feels quite exposing but then I think it's important to have those things out there that other people can relate to and maybe they're autistic maybe they're autism adjacent but it just gives more of a feeling of what it's like. Mm and what the experience is like. So yeah, it was really 
at first challenging to write about those things, but then, yeah, it became more important to me during the writing of the book. So tell us about Vita then, who arrives in a bit of a, a whirlwind, this, this glamorous next door neighbour that Sunday has to, I was going to say put up with, but there's a there's certainly a kind of friendship and a kinship at first. So tell us about Vita, tell us about kind of what conflict she brings to the story. I actually really enjoyed hearing her come to life in the audible version of the book, because the actress does a great job. Um, with Vita's accent and the way she speaks and that was really entertaining to hear. In fact with Vita the fires that I spoke about earlier with you, the fires around the village, were kind of where Vita came from. There's um, the first chapter of the book is called um, Fire Can Be Mistaken for Light and the idea is that fire can be mistaken for light and can call to you in the same way that light does and for me Vita is very much that fire. She initially is very appealing um, and Sunday, as many people do, feel drawn to her. But then actually, she's Rita's got the capacity to burn as well as be beautiful. So um, when I was writing about Vita, I was always thinking about those fires. And in many ways, Vita works as an opposite to Sunday because Sunday is more socially awkward and introverted and she looks up to Vita as somebody she would like to be, somebody who's charming, um, you know, gifted at communication. Um, But then over the course of the book, Sunday comes to see that Vita's intentions are very much about self-interest rather than the people around her. And I think hopefully the readers feel that, um, without giving any spoilers away, that towards the end of the book, they feel... Sunday is actually relieved that she's not like like Vita, like she doesn't have the charm, but she has a more natural way of being with people and a a way of connecting that's more authentic, even if it's not going to charm a room full of people. Mm. Um, It's a different kind of connection and one that she actually begins to value by the end of the book. Yeah, I think Vita's one of those characters that if she turned up on my doorstep, I can see <laughs> why she would be appealing, but also what a pain she would be. <laughs> <laughs> One of those sparkly people that you just need to speak to, but yeah, probably yeah, drug you her want her to go home afterwards. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you want a bit of space. You don't want them to be your neighbour. That would be too much. Far too much. <laughs> so you mentioned that the novel's set in the late 80s. What was it that appealed to you about writing in that era? Um, yeah, there was... Um, there's, I suppose, two main reasons that I set it in the 80s. Um, initially, um, the predominant reason is that I wanted Sunday to experience and process her autism without access to the language and the contemporary theories around the condition. Um, so I wanted her to exist in a way that was free of those things and for other people to be judging her without that potential knowledge they would have now Mm. um, to make her experience really pure, really internal, really unaffected by the way neurotypical people have translated the condition. Um, So that was my first reason. Um, I just think it's more interesting and useful for it almost to exist in that vacuum in the book so that Sunday can really be at one with it herself. And the other reason was that um, the 80s was very much a time of 
that sort of showiness and flashy excess that both Fita and Wallow bring. And I think portraying their class and wealth would be a more subdued process if I'd set it in the present time. But because it was the 80s, they're um, very showy and very unselfconscious about it. And that's some, one of the things that really dazzles someday. So mm. I wanted it to be as big and glittery in that element as it could be. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm just thinking now if you'd set it in the present day, they'd have to all be all about like their Instagram profile and uh, yes, you know, <laughs> it'd be kind of more more sophisticated about the way they showed it as well. Yeah, and... whereas eighties is like big earrings, big hair, you know, all yeah. the flashy clothes and stuff. So yeah, yeah. That, I think that would be a lot harder. You're right, and I, I, there's a certain, I guess, there's a certain kind of nostalgic glamour to that period as well, which which really works with the characters. Yeah, I think so. So tell us about the title. First of all, did you come up with the title or was that a discussion with your editor? And also tell us about the kind of bird motifs throughout the novel, because there's a lot of descriptions about um, kind of people's voices being bird-like or their bodies being bird-like. Where was where did the kind of bird motif come from? Yeah, um, I suppose that came up quite early, the title. I was originally thinking about um, referencing the fires in the title because the fires early on had been much more um, a factor in the novel for me. Um, And the birds came a little bit later, but once the birds came in, I felt like that was where the title would be. Um, And the title came from something that happened quite a few years ago. Some elderly neighbours that we had um, showed us around their very lovely garden and in the garden they had what I thought was some kind of rabbit run or a dog run um, but there was a bird trapped inside it and when I asked them about the run they said it was actually a trap and it was called a Larson trap and the way it works is that one bird lives in the trap um, and he calls other birds because he just because they sing obviously and other birds come to investigate what he's doing so he sings them down to him and then when the, the visiting bird comes to investigate, he'd fall in into the trap and be captured in a room separate from the original bird who called him down. Um, and that way the couple collected the birds. And then shockingly, <laughs> I was quite surprised, they strangled them at the end of the week and put them on a bonfire because they, they were birds that these people considered um, garden pests. So... I think it's quite, I think people probably just don't do it so much anymore, but it was something that very serious gardeners sometimes did. Um, and it was so shocking because we were in this beautiful garden and we could hear the birds singing and it was all so lovely, but it was also, oh my God, this is such very a shock. dark. <laughs> very dark, but I quite enjoy those moments in life where suddenly it's a sunny day, but everything has suddenly gone really dark. Mm. So that's why it really stayed in my head for a long time and I was thinking about it. And then, um, when I was thinking about Vita and to some extent Wallow as well, I was imagining them as that original bird that is in some ways a jailer, but also continues to use his beautiful song to call those around him to their demise. And so for that reason, when I thought about the Larson Trap, I really identified Vita as being that original bird that uses her charm to pull the others down and they're sort of drawn to her they don't know why or what's going to happen but then 
even when they're being carted off and strangled and burnt on the bonfire around her, she just keeps on singing. And uh, with Sunday being someone who would identify as not having a song of any kind, because she doesn't see herself as having that charm, she'd be the most enthralled by Vita and her singing. So that's um, really where the idea for the bird and the bird hearts came from. Um, mm. And that's where my title came from. Yeah, from that that day in the garden. That is the <laughs> best this like description or origin story of where our titles come from that I've ever heard but oh. how dark and creepy I've never heard of this last and trap before I mean that's kind of horrifying but a great bit of inspiration I guess I'm, I mean I'm quite surprised that someone hasn't turned that into some human in a in a novel I mean a human <laughs> trap that would be chilling <laughs> I mean yeah it was one of those very strange moments but they're the ones that stay with you aren't they and they're the ones Absolutely. that make you think afterwards did I really did that really just happen to me <laughs> and great great fodder for, for writing as well definitely yeah it really yeah it was I just wanted to ask you about your your kind of writing in general because um I think anyone who loves kind of literary novels or novels with um a great story but also beautiful prose would love your book because you've got such a lyrical, beautiful way of writing. And I was wondering whether that's something that kind of comes to you naturally. Is that something that comes out in the first draft or is that something you kind of have to work at in your edits? How How is it for you? Um, when I'm beginning to write, I'm, I just write for myself. I don't think about an audience or necessarily about how it reads. And I don't, ever expect it to make sense for a long time. So I don't mind writing quite an insensical kind of lyrical writing that isn't, doesn't necessarily have structure at the beginning. Um, and then I think that's the most fun stage, that abstract stage. And then when it moves from being my own thoughts into something that's gonna be shown to people, I think that's when the hard work begins. And I think that's the time when self self-doubt can set in and slow you down mm. and I'm quite a slow writer at that stage the beginning's easy and then the bit where it's going to be read by other people is the part where I find myself really slowing down and becoming perhaps overly self-conscious about it the thing I love about writing is how it just stays with me all the time so if I'm working on a project whatever I'm doing the work's just always in my mind and always with me. So I, whatever else I'm experiencing, the, the writing just seems to inhabit that as well. And I love that because it's kind of like a form of mindfulness, I suppose, where you can't worry about things and you can't focus on the wrong things because you're always being, your mind's been overridden by this compulsion and this writing that you're focusing on. And so, for example, if I was writing and I'd, been on that day when I went to the garden with the older people who had their Larson trap my mind would have been on fire with that because that would have immediately gone to the story I was writing and made all kinds of things make sense so I love that feeling of connection that I have when I'm writing and everything just seems more alive and more meaningful so all the ordinary things that happen during the course of a day when I'm writing all those otherwise dull moments just are like fizzing with life and that's the reason I write I think is that feeling mm. so I might have take from that that you kind of love that 
early initial stage where you're just kind of writing with a blank page and you're not worrying about structure and yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) is that the same for you no I hate the blank page that's my worst part oh and you like it further down the line yeah I I like when I have something already and I know that I'm gonna kind of polish it and make it lovely it's the it's the first draft of the first pages where I know that I'm just pouring out kind of rubbish basically and and it needs needs work um mm. but yeah I I, I can't relate <laughs> <laughs> many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So what's your what's your starting point then when you're working on something new? Is it does it kind of tend to start from an image? I mean you said you started with the kind of buyers. So does it is it kind of more of an image-based starting point for you then? Um I would say I'm quite visual in terms of story and when I'm reading a book I know I love those authors that even if they write in a quiet way they really bring the image to life and I can see it while I'm reading it so I love Penelope Mortimer, Richard Yates, um, I love Mrs Bridge the novel by um, Evan Connell. I love those books that just go a bit slower and really bring the setting and the people to life with you know extra detail and really um a lot of language a lot of dense language I like when I'm reading so I aim to do that in my writing and 
I think I think my images probably are fairly visual and yeah that's something that I think you, I think you'd like to to write what you like to read don't you mm, and so I think that's the style probably that I that I go for and that's where I find inspiration is is mainly in yeah in images yeah I think so when it comes to kind of the more boring structural stuff and the plotting your books are quite a quiet book but it does have a a story to it and a, a narrative pull how would you go about creating that in in a much quieter book is that something you had to do like further down the line were you thinking of the kind of overall story arc when you started what was the kind of process like for that um I think because my book um is character driven essentially I had the characters at the very beginning they were quite strong for me in terms of um I felt like I knew a lot about the characters before I knew the plot but the one thing I knew was that I wanted Sunday to go from initially being unsure about herself um and very have a lot of self-doubt about herself and then to find somebody like Vita who she wants to model herself on who she aspires to be like but then ultimately to find that's disappointing so I knew I had that sort of narrative arc that I had Vita had to arrive as this very appealing person and then become something else. So I had that plot in mind. And as I began to write them, I realised how that would happen and what Vita would want from Sunday and what that would cost Sunday. So I think the characters, I knew the journey Sunday had to go on and I knew the characters. And that then is really what, created the plot after that so I would say that's how it went and I I knew the specifics sort of by halfway through the book I was understanding how it was going to end but um I love Edith Wharton and Edith Wharton in her art of fiction says that the first page should speak to the last page so I'm always a bit suspicious people don't know at all what they're going to write because I think if you do that how could the first page speak to the last page but um I already had the characters and I knew and I knew already roughly what would happen. So hopefully I achieve that. But I think I like that idea. I like the idea of having some kind of intention when you're writing. Mm. And I definitely had that intention. Mm, definitely. And I love what you say about the, the first and last page. And I think that that is a, a kind of the mirror image of the beginning and ending is, is what I like as well. And, mm. It's satisfying, I, isn't it? Yeah, and and I I think as well. I remember receiving some writing advice that said, you know, your ending should somehow mirror your opening in some way, and mm-hmm. and I think that was probably the most helpful advice that I had, and and really clarified for me what my ending was going to be. So I think yeah, I'm struggling out there, kind of with their ending, kind of think about what your opening is and how you could twist it to make it a good ending. Yeah. Yeah, and give your reader the satisfaction of knowing that they knew something all along. You know, from the beginning, they knew something and that it wasn't fully formed to the end, but it was always there for them. Mm, Definitely. So I want to talk a little bit about your kind of writing journey to get to this point. And I have to mention that you and I first met, I reckon it was about 10 years ago. (laughs) um, And we both did an open university course. And then we ended up bumping into each other at the University of Kent. So I'd love to hear 
from my note in this as well as everyone else's your kind of journey to publication and I know you did a PhD so tell us about kind of how you got to this point then what was your writing journey like? Okay well first of all I can't believe that was 10 years ago (laughs) and I remember it so well I remember meeting you for the first time I remember reading your work in the class uh, and I even remember the, the story that you wrote. I remember all those I can't things. even remember that, so. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it very well. But I can't believe it was so long ago. Um, it does seem like it really wasn't that long ago. <laughs> um, so when I came to university, I had done an access course. Um, but I left school without um, any qualifications when I was 16. And then when my children... My youngest children started school. I went back to education, did the access course. I did the open university degree, which I really enjoyed. Did you enjoy doing that? Yeah, I loved it. Learned it was a great so experience. Yeah, yeah, me too. It was a really good experience for me too. Um, so, and after that, I intended just to do the, the one degree. But then I, I loved it so much. I carried on and did the master's at Kent, where I met you again. And then during that master's course, I had the idea for this book and I'd thought about doing a PhD by that point in Italian studies and I had it sort of planned out but um, I was distracted by thinking about this book and I discussed it with Amy Sackville at the University of Kent and I was really lucky that she became my supervisor and then that book became um, the foundation for my doctoral research the end of my PhD coincided with lockdown and I so I finished my PhD during lockdown and submitted it while I was waiting for the uh, PhD examination I sent my book to Jenny Houston at Lutins and Rubenstein and she then signed me and then just after I took the Viva um, Jenny found publishers for the book so in lockdown and yeah all made lockdown a lot more interesting um (laughs) but that happened at the very end of lockdown and I've been editing I was editing after that to get the book ready for publication and that's how it all happened I didn't really know anything about the publication the way it worked at all but I just knew I had to get an agent if I was ever going to be published so I thought I would try to get an agent I hadn't expected while I was writing or doing the PhD, that's where I was heading. But it it was like a lovely surprise at the end of the PhD to also have interest from an agent. Absolutely. Um, and if I have one criticism of Kent University, I would say like the master's certainly when I was there, there wasn't a lot of information about the publishing industry or how to get an agent or anything like that. And it is sort of, I mean apart from knowing that you've got to get an agent it's quite a, a hard thing to navigate um and amazing that you you kind of wrote to an agent and the, was she the only one that you'd written to or had you had you tried any others no jenny was the one that i wrote to and because my my masters was literature i only did one um creative writing um section of it so i hadn't done lots of creative writing during my masters so i really had no understanding at all I'd never considered being published or writing creatively in that way Mm. so yeah I think I was just really fortunate yeah 
so not just luck I've been talent as well oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> thank you Chloe <laughs> so I mean there's been loads recently in the kind of publishing press about how debut authors have had a difficult time with their mental health in their publishing year and how challenging it can be to navigate the publishing industry and certainly authors that I've interviewed have said they've found things challenging or difficult and obviously for you um as neurodivergent there are other challenges um facing you when you're working through the kind of publishing industry because it's and you know sometimes a lot of weird email speak or very kind of oh. opaque uh structures in the system you know I I mean even I find that when I started out I was like well, who do I email about this and oh. can I ask this question and and not knowing certain things how was how's it been for you and and I was wondering whether there's anything kind of that you've experienced that you think that the industry could do better in terms of the kind of um I guess the the level of support that the industry might give authors that are in your diversion what's it been like for you um I think this is a really good question because it is such an unknown territory mm. um I think one of the problems with communication and with aiming to improve it is that often it's only much later that one realizes there's been a miscommunication or a misunderstanding it's really rare at the time that you feel, I'm not getting this, can I have more clarification? Mm. So I think there's that kind of knowing afterwards, which makes things sometimes impossible to go back and unpick. Um, I've been lucky with um, my publisher and my agent in that they're really clear. And because it was locked down initially when I met them and was starting to work on the book with them, all our communication was really by email. Um, and as I've got older, I find it much easier to ask for really clear, direct instructions um, and just to be very straightforward. Also, there's the case that other people are going to have their own ways of communicating and their own ways of emailing, their own language. So even if they're trying, there's sometimes that kind of wall between you um i think the most positive thing i can do is ask for real clarity in communication and also i just treat all emails and all texts even really like exam questions so i take my time with them i highlight the instructions i break them down and i really use all the study skills that i learned at the open university um to make sure that I'm not going off on a tangent of my own, that I'm actually focusing on what's being asked. Um, so if I was going to be in a position to give advice, I would say to know yourself and your own communication style as much as possible. Take the time you need um, and not to compare yourself to other people in their styles. I know sometimes I'll be going through an email and sending a really laborious slow reply that might take me a few days to get right then my email goes off and the person replies immediately and I think that's like are they wizards how do they do that how did they just write that email in five minutes as a response to what I've said because it does take me long a really long time um so I think all you can do really is be accepting of that those facts about yourself and yeah when it's something really important like work 
just to treat it like an exam question. I mean, I find emails more stressful than exams. So I might as well just get on the adrenaline and you treat it like I'm an exam, you know, an exam situation. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good question. It's just, it's hard to break down how that could be applied for everyone, but I'm sure if, I'm sure if people just have an idea of their own communication styles, those can always be, you know, be improved and just give yourself time. Don't mm. expect to do emails in a day if you find that element difficult or whatever, whatever element of it is that you find difficult, give yourself the time mm. to work through. Is this, is it something that you've kind of been open with your publishing team about as well? Because I've found that for a lot of writers who maybe do have, um, whether they're disabled or chronically ill or whatever, seem to have the best experience when they've spoken to their agent or their team and said, look, I, you know, I get very fatigued or whatever it is. Just, uh, I mean, I mean, I'm, my team's been fantastic in terms of saying to me, look, you, you've been in pain. Don't do, don't do it. Don't, don't force yourself to respond oh. to this if you're, if you're not in a good place, or whatever. Have you found that, um, they've been I mean it sounds like you've had a good experience with your with your team yeah and I'm, I'm happy that you've had that experience because it's so important isn't it mm. to feel that you have that space to to talk about your own needs yeah um yeah my team's been really good um I think yeah it's, it's a different experience for everyone autism and when when I was talking to the publishers first you know, I really thought about the aspect of identifying as an autistic writer openly and what that would mean for me, because I think disclosure can be quite difficult, particularly, you know, if I was a younger person at the, or, you know, at the beginning of my career or my dating life, it would put me in a vulnerable position to disclose in such a public way. Mm. Um, yeah, but I just, I felt it was important because I know when I'm reading, I love feeling that connection toward the autistic writers. So mm -hmm. I felt that it was important to be open about it. Although, and it's not always, it's not always an entirely positive thing to disclose. And obviously we're in a, you know, competitive space writing and you don't want to be slower or different or more demanding. So yeah, it's never an entirely straightforward decision or process, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the publishing, well, the post-publication experience for you then. What's been um, the best part of being a published author so far? Um, I think um, as a parent, I'm, I have neurotypical children and autistic children. Um, and I'm really happy to have shown them that it's possible to do the things that you care about. And for me, that wasn't, necessarily being published because I wasn't I didn't always have that idea that that was what I was aiming for um but more about getting my degrees and not that academics is the most important thing but having left school at 16 without any qualifications my children knew about that and they also knew how much I love books and literature and I'm just generally very bookish and yet I had nothing to show for it so I'm glad to have bridged that gap and shown them, you know, that the autism hasn't stopped me from pursuing those things that I really care about. Um, and that's something I'm really 
grateful to have shown them. Um, so that's definitely one of the best things. The other best thing probably is that um, my husband's always been really supportive about the writing and also my supervisor, Amy Sackville at the University of Kent. They were both, they both always just felt like I was, of course I was going to write a book, even on the days that I really didn't think I was going to write a book. So I always appreciated that. And it's great to say to those two people, look, you were right. And I was wrong. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for their, their belief. That's really helpful, isn't it? When you're writing, do you find that? Mm. Yeah, you do need those people in your life, particularly, I think, when you're having a day where you just can't see the wood for the trees. Uh -huh. and like, I'm never going to finish this. What's the point? Um, you need those people that believe in you and, and think you have it in you. And um, Amy Sackville, for me, was one of those people as well because yeah. um, she was one of my tutors at Kent. And, and when I was writing, I was writing short stories at the time and she turned around and said to me, this isn't a short story this is a novel and I was like oh, I'm, not, I'm not writing that it's too hard no way and then I was like well if she thinks I can do it then maybe I should try and uh and here we are so we both have a lot to thank Amy for which is lovely yeah it's that thing of having a writer and a writer whose work I love saying I like what you're writing and that's that's so important isn't it it's like transforming especially when you're having difficult days and you're not, you don't feel like it's going anywhere, just having that validation from someone who you admire is transforming. Yeah, particularly as well as often as writers, we live so much in our own heads and mm -hmm. it's hard sometimes to step away from that and think, is it any good? I've got no idea. <laughs> yeah. And uh, particularly, particularly when we're starting something new. And on that topic, finally, I have to ask you, can you give us any kind of hint about What's next for you? What are you working on at the moment? Give us a little teaser. Um, so I'm roughly working on two projects. One is about a woman who um, is recently widowed and then finds out her husband is not who she had thought he was. And she has to review their life and consider the part she played in enabling his bad behaviors um so i'm writing that and i'm also writing about a semi-famous woman who became sort of famous in the 1970s and i've always felt she was very misrepresented and been a bit obsessed with her so i'm writing about her in a more sympathetic way and I'm really enjoying writing that and I'm not 100% convinced either of the projects super commercial or necessarily books but I'm just enjoying writing both of them to be honest because they're both uh yeah especially the second idea is just very personal to me and just something I'm fascinated by so it's always easier to write something that you're very interested in isn't it yeah absolutely well they both sound great to me so I hope oh. at least one of them emerges at some <laughs> we'll see Victoria, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thanks, Chloe. It was so nice to catch up and speak to you. That was Victoria Lloyd Barlow talking about her literary novel, All the Little Bird Hearts, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. 
If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.